News Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. The Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. Remember, get the podcast at WBT.com. If you want to send an email, it's Pete at the Pete Callender Show. Um, I didn't actually finish reading through the email that I got from Dwight earlier. So, uh, to restart the hour, we're talking about uh, potential changes to the North Carolina Teacher Compensation Program. And uh, it has got the usual suspects making the usual arguments against anything other than annual bumps in pay based on nothing except experience and more credentials. They want the restoration of master's pay. So if you got a master's degree, they want you to be able to get more money for that every year just because you have a master's degree. Um, they, if you make it to you know 20 years of service, they want you to be able to get extra money because you made it to 20 years of service. Congratulations. You didn't get fired, so we're going to give you even more money. It's like longevity pay, that kind of thing, which North Carolina used to do that. A lot of local governments did it too. I just oppose just the, just the, just the philosophy behind it. You, you made it a very long time not getting fired, so here's some extra money. I mean, I appreciate that, but and, and then it's longevity pay, and, just, and it goes into the pay every year. So it, it's like compounding. Yeah, no. You want to give me a bonus because I didn't get fired, I guess. But longevity pay? No. All right, so let me read uh, from the top here. This was Dwight's email talking about teacher pay. He says, I checked out the history of teacher pay a few years ago. North Carolina had many years of no pay raise increase, no pay increases for um, for teachers when Democrats controlled the legislature. And that is true, by the way. After the Republicans took control in 2010, 2011, technically, uh, and paid off the six billion dollar deficit, they started annual increases, except the year that Cooper vetoed the teacher pay raise increase. I think the practicality of keeping teacher pay competitive was the motivation of the Republicans. It was difficult to get the pay history once Cooper was in office, but I don't know if this was on purpose. Compounding annual increases is important for budgets and maintaining competitive salaries. All right, that's the end of the email. So a couple things. He is correct that Democrats furloughed teachers and froze their pay, and actually they never did make up that step increase that was lost. A step increase, by the way, is like, They used to, North Carolina Democrats, when they were in charge and they set up all these steps, you would get, you know, after five years of service, you would get a, you know, 12% pay raise. And I'm just making these numbers up. I don't recall what they were. But after five years, you got one chunk, you got one step up. And then two years later, you got another step. And then three years after that, you got another step. And then like 14 and a half months after that, you got another step. So they built in all these crazy steps that weren't really tied to anything except well, probably campaign contributions from the unions. But there wasn't really any kind of rationale for why the steps were the amounts they were and why they were occurring after the particular years they were. Republicans came in and they said, we're going to get rid of these steps. But that was after Democrats froze the steps. They froze pay, and teachers who missed their step never got the pay for that. And then they blamed Republicans, the Democrats and the Media and the teachers unions, they blamed Republicans who took over and they and when the teachers started demanding that the Republicans pay back the step, you need to go back and give us the money that we didn't get. That's what their argument was. 
We should have got this. We didn't get it. Republicans then said, look, we're reforming all of this. But we can't do it all at once because we're reforming a lot of things in state government. The tax system, for one, that was their primary focus. They needed to overhaul the tax system. And by the way, this was actually a, um, a position that Democrats shared prior to them losing uh, control. Democrats, they understood that our tax system was based on you know, a manufacturing heavy uh, kind of industrial uh, production uh, economy. It wasn't a service economy. And we needed to change the way we were taxing. And we weren't competitive. We had very high sales taxes and high income taxes, high gas taxes. And so they, they knew we had to change it, but they could never muster the political will to get it done. Republicans took over and they say, we're doing our tax reforms. Now, the thing about the tax reform was that you can't just do it all at once because you don't know what the impacts are going to be. It's more art than science. So as they start chopping down the income tax rates, they're seeing what's happening with the revenue streams because the left and the media, but I repeat myself, they were screaming, if you cut the income tax rates, oh my gosh, uh, we're going to go bankrupt. This is going to be utter catastrophe. You know, cats and dogs living together, mass hysteria, like real wrath of God type stuff. That's what was in store for us, according to the North Carolina Budget and Tax Center, who was quoted, you know, prolifically in all of the statewide media publications. So Republicans come along and they start whittling it down and they say, let's see what happens with the budget revenue. And sure enough, as they start cutting the income tax rate, the revenue to the Treasury goes up, goes up. So now they know how much money they're working with. So they're like, okay, we are now, we're going to start reforming the teacher pay uh, structure as well. They wanted to move to more merit-based pay type things, and they got, they got blocked. They got shut down. They got sued over it because, of course, they got sued because that's what, that's what Sue Teal Blue is all about. Um, you had all, and they got rid of the master's pay bump. They got rid of that so you don't get extra money just for having a master's degree unless you had it before 2013. So they start making these changes along the way while trying to make sure that they don't lose all of it to, you know, that that they're not going to make commitments to teachers that they then can't fund because the revenue side of the picture doesn't uh, work out. So there's that. So they go into it and they say, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to target the, the new teachers. That was their first focus. If I remember correctly, it was like, we're going to do new teachers first. That's where we can have the best impact. We can raise starting teacher pay because the unions and the Democrats and the media, but I repeat myself, they were, they were all in on the teacher pay. Starting teacher pay is terrible. It was very low. It was like 20 something thousand dollars a year. So they said, all right, let's change that. So they went about creating this essentially 15 year guaranteed thousand dollar annual step increase for the first 15 years. You're going to start at 35 K. They raised all starting teacher pay to 35 K. And 15 grand pay raises for 15 years to get you to $50,000 by year 15. Not counting supplement. Not counting your local supplemental funding that comes from the counties. Okay? When they said they were going to do that, you know what the response was? It was opposition. Because what about the veteran teachers, all of us that have been here for longer than, you know, five years, 10 years? We're not getting any of this. And they said we're going to have to come back to you which by the way they did they came back and they started doing the pay raises 
until Governor Cooper took over. And when Governor Cooper took over as governor, he he vetoed every single budget that had teacher pay in it. He used it as leverage. He held teacher pay hostage in order to get Medicaid expansion. And Republicans refused. And so teachers, if you are mad that you didn't get pay raises since Roy Cooper's been governor, you know who to blame. But you guys voted for him anyway, so it doesn't matter. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. It's the Pete Callender Show, 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. See, this is why a lot of people have a hard time talking about teacher pay issues is because it's a very complex topic. And in North Carolina specifically, right, there's a lot of history. There's a lot of recent history. There are different policies at play. So... It takes this long to kind of go through this stuff. It's not just, are you for the teachers or against them? And if you're for them, then you're just going to do what they demand. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I don't think that the way we pay teachers right now is a good way. But I'm not interested in having to pay the bad ones as much money as I pay the good ones. So unless we're all willing to kind of work together on creating a better way to pay teachers, then this is the system we've got. Let me go over here to Stan. Hello, Stan. Welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, Hello? Stan. Hey, how are you? Hey. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. What's up? Yeah, I want to say something simple about both these subjects. Number one, the income tax. States uh, like Florida, Tennessee, and Texas have nothing, and their economies are booming. Mm -hmm. Income taxes are for government control purposes only. The two highest debt states are the ones that have the highest income tax rates. They're New York and California. Yeah, but they also have high sales taxes. Yeah. Now, uh, and so do those states. But right? so do those states without income taxes. That's you know, it's the same thing. With, you know, property tax as well. There's a you know, it's a balloon, and you're just squeezing different sides of the balloon. The air is still moving through. All governments require there to be taxes levied to fund the government operations, right? Right. So, now, the other thing is with, uh, uh, with, with pay, I don't, I, I, I've always not thought that you should tie pay to hourly or otherwise guaranteed. If I had a company, I would tie everybody's pay to their production or give them a percentage interest in the company, no matter how small, and their production would increase. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, how would you work that out for teachers in a school system? You, you, Test their effectiveness the same way you test the student's effectiveness. How would you? And so, what does that mean? That means that means you, you you would figure out a way to give them a report card, give them a grade. Right. What well, I agree with you. Set standards for them, and if you're going to give students a grade, give teachers a grade. Right. I agree with you. And when whenever I say something, you know, along those lines, <clears throat> usually the argument that I will get back is that they can't possibly create some sort of a system like that because. You're trying to assess them based on the performance of their students. And that's not fair. And their students are coming from all these different challenging backgrounds and stuff. And so that's not fair. You can't do that. And my argument is the same as yours, is that if they're in the business of creating assessments for other people, um, why are they unable to create assessments for themselves? Right. Well, one of the things is once you give somebody guaranteed pay, 
you just you just put them in a position where they're going to do as little as they can to keep that paycheck coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of the natural state of things. There are very few people that are motivated to keep doing more and more and more. There are very few people. Um, th- this is it's in, in, um, 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 unless there's an incentive to. Yeah, what? Unless there's an incentive to do more. Right, correct. That is one way to incentivize the people, especially who are not self-motivated to do more. Some people are. And, uh, and Stan, I appreciate the call. They're, they're, I learned this when, uh, before I got back to BT here, I was doing my own podcast. And I had my own LLC, my own company, did my own show. And it was successful. And um, I learned what a lot of small business owners had told me over the years. But I didn't really fully comprehend it until I was doing it myself, which is, and this is the, right. This is true for a great many things in life. For example, people who say, Oh, uh, and I got an email here saying, well, you're not a, you know, you're not a teacher. If you've never taught, you can't, you, you can't say these things. You can't have an opinion or argue this or whatever. You don't know. Cause you're not a teacher. That's, that's one of the arguments. But when I was in business for myself, I realized waking up every, I was up every morning at 5 a.m. And I worked six days a week, like on the clock, basically. And I would work 16-hour days. And there is a certain level of motivation you've got when it's all on you that I never fully understood until it was all on me. There's no other way to, there's no other way to know that feeling. And there's a switch, I call it, in my head. Like there was this switch. And all of a sudden, it's you're on the hunt. That's it. And, and everything is about getting the job done, getting the problem solved now and moving on. And it's a different kind of motivation. It is. And so, yeah, when you have people that are not self-motivated like that, if that switch isn't flipped for them, then the incentives help to foster that kind of motivation. And people are motivated by different things. By the way, there are some people that are motivated by virtually nothing and they're not going to do any extra work even if you throw a bunch of money their direction they're not going to do it they're they they do not care they hit a plateau they're like i'm satisfied here this is enough for me and by the way i'm not saying that as a negative to them if the, if the, if you are satisfied with where you are and what you earn and what you do and how you spend your time and your work-life balance that's fantastic for you i'm just not going to allow somebody else to leverage your choice into guilt to make me pay more money that's all In short, don't whiz on my boots and tell me it's raining. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Got uh, a tweet. It's another segment of Pete's Tweets. But they're not my tweets. They're tweets that I receive. Pete gets tweets. Pete's received tweets. I'll work on it. Okay, so I got a tweet. It says, a business world example is somebody who sells socks complaining that they can't sell the socks because consumers won't buy the socks. Hey, your job is to sell the socks. Figure it out or find a new profession. Right? And go over here to Jim. Hello, Jim. What's going on? Hey, Pete. Hey, what's up? Pete, every citizen in the state, I would contend every citizen in the United States is going to have to deal with three things in their lifetime. They're going to have to deal with Retirement, medical care, and education. You can't avoid it, Pete, if you're a living, breathing human being. 
Okay, right now, when you go to vote, you just said 60%, I think, of the state budget is education system. Mm-hmm. I contend it's higher than that if you get down to the county level, where they also do a lot of bond issues for actually building all these public facilities. Correct. I well, and like- yeah, let me stop you right there, because it's a very important point that you raised. So the, the state takes care of the operational side. They give a, a baseline amount. Counties can supplement for the operational side as well. But the counties, historically, they have been the ones that build the buildings. They do the capital. So that's where you're getting into the bond referendum, as Jim just mentioned. And you're exactly right. Although now the state, last year or so, they've now started getting involved in the capital side as well. Yeah, uh, you're right. You're correct, Pete. And let me tell you something. There's some fine educational buildings, artwork. I mean, it's just mind-blowing when I look at the facilities right now, you're right around the state versus what existed just 30 or 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. So there's a ton of money going into facilities. Mm-hmm. But, but Pete, uh, I contend that when you go vote every year, and that's one of the reasons I've turned into a political agnostic, uh, you're voting, you've only got about 20 to maybe 30% in a great year of money that you truly vote. You have any discretion, discretion as a voter that you can control when you actually make your voting selection. It's already committed, Pete, the yeah. budget and the money. Yeah, baseline uh, budgeting. Right. It's, it's, it, it, well, well, Social Security and Medicare and even the Fed's involvement in education, don't, sure. don't forget Title I and all that money, mm-hmm. all that, that's about 70% of the federal budget, Pete. Mm-hmm. And, and, and nobody's going to do anything about those programs, either R or D. They're not going to do anything about them. And on the state level, you just pointed out 60 and maybe even 70%. That's already earmarked to the public system. So you all, as a voter, you every year, every two years and you vote or every year, you're only getting to vote on maybe 20. And will any of these politicians talk about an alternative, which to me would be privatizing the system? Well, yeah, there are, well, yeah, Jim, there are definitely politicians in Raleigh that talk about not privatizing the system, but there's a uh, the, the voucher system. But now there's going to be a push in this upcoming legislative session for education savings accounts to basically take the money that you would otherwise have spent on uh, some of the vouchers, start moving some of that money into these ESAs that allow parents to get their kids, for example, tutoring because of the pandemic. Like, why not take some of those some of those pandemic dollars, use them to help kids catch back up after learning loss and see. And so that's sort of the that's the PR of it. I will say this is my opinion on the matter, which is that that will get the. The the nose under the tent, right? That's going to get you in the door. Once you create those ESAs, now the system is in place, and now you're going to be able to use that money for all sorts of other things. Well, Pete, Pete I'll make two more comments. One, and especially a system as large as uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg School System, which is one of the biggest in the country now, mm-hmm. you've got people in there getting these salaries, and of course they complain they're never high enough, and benefits that couldn't get that that level of compensation and benefits out in the free market. They couldn't get them. So basically what you've done is turned the so-called education system into a welfare system to a large degree. It's a, well, a jobs program. This is uh, I mentioned this the other day. This is along the lines of uh, what Milton Friedman talked about, how most government spending programs and services, most of that are actually uh, uh, programs that benefit 
the middle class. Their wealth transfers to the middle class. And that's a, a perfect example of it because the people who do those jobs are middle class. And the, and this is another thing that's going to get me in trouble, but it is true. Teachers, people who work in government K-12 education, you are not tax producers. You are tax consumers. You're, you're, you're not a taxpayer. I mean, I understand that money is deducted out of your check, but that that's all taxpayer funding, right? So it, on the ledger, you, you are costing more tax dollars. And I don't say that as an insult. I'm not trying to offend them. But the people who are in the private sector that are generating the tax money for these programs and services, the, it is a different class. It is a different kind of relationship with the system. And, and Tito, I'll make one more comment. Your, your morning host has the state treasurer on periodically. Yeah. And and he was bragging the other morning, just within the past couple of weeks, about the North Carolina retirement system is now at $122 billion, I think he said. $122 billion, Pete. Mm-hmm. Okay? That, that's a, that, and, and I understand that the North Carolina system, which is not as big as the CalPERS out in California or maybe Illinois or New York, but but it's one of the best-funded public retirement systems in the free world. Okay? Right, and it's still, but it's still bad. It's it's one of the best, but it's still bad. I'm sorry, it's still what? Bad. It's it, it, Dale Falwell will tell you like that. It's it's kind of like being the ugliest or the prettiest pig, right? In the contest, like they they still have very big challenges, deficits that they're running. It is well funded. To the like better than most other systems in as you mentioned in the free world, but it still needs to be shored up because the promises that were made by Democrats for decades, you know, those had real costs, and that's why the state had to change their uh, their compensation formulas. Well, well, Pete, taxpayers are largely responsible for that money being there. Okay, correct. <laughs> That they're the ones that put the money there. I heard Harlan Boyles, the longtime treasurer of the system, about thirty years ago, yeah. say it's the people's money. It's not the people's money, Pete. It's the state employees' money. <laughs> right. No, I got you, Jim. I got to run. Yeah, I appreciate the call, sir. Good chat. Thank you so much. And great points. And uh, here's some. Talk 1110 and 99.3 WBT. So the earliest that uh, that this overhaul of the state licensure uh, program for teachers, the earliest we're going to see this kind of get through the committee and then to the State Board of Education, it's going to be this summer. Then legislators would weigh in on the plan um, in the long session uh, that's going to begin in January 2023. So there'd be a new legislature uh, by that point. Uh, let me go over some of the opposition. Because, as I mentioned earlier, it's sort of the same old arguments. Every time these plans come up, anytime reform efforts uh, come up. So this is a website called Caffeinated Rage. It's a teacher. It's a North Carolina teacher. I don't remember. I think I may have known the person's name. It doesn't matter. This is their blog. And they say, I don't know of a single instance in public education where merit pay actually has increased student achievement. Yet many lawmakers not only advocate merit pay, but also differential pay based on the willingness to, quote, take on additional tasks. 
by clubs, coaching, mentoring, and chairing of departments. So, so she's even opposed to this idea of differential pay. So if like you punch a clock and basically hit the door and never do anything outside of your workday, meanwhile, I'm, you know, mentoring students and I'm, uh, I'm like this, the, the teacher advisor for all these clubs and I'm coaching that what I shouldn't get extra pay for doing those things. First, they say, look at merit pay as a whole. The bottom line is that merit pay destroys collaboration and promotes competition. Merit pay, I mean, just read this again. Merit pay destroys collaboration and promotes competition. So you're saying that you are surrounded by people who are unable to be professionals? Merit-based pay only destroys collaboration if for some reason you view other teachers as a threat to you. Why would you view them as a threat? If a teacher is doing something that's working really well, why wouldn't you learn from that teacher and do what they're doing? Or are you saying you couldn't do what they're doing? Or are you saying you don't want to do what they're doing? Why wouldn't you emulate the best performers? Wouldn't that be one way to go too? Wouldn't you try to collaborate with them and say, hey, how do you do this? How are you successful? Or maybe you think that you learned everything you need to learn back in teacher college and with your continuing education classes or whatever. And so now you think you just know it all and you don't need to learn anything else? That your your pedagogy that, that you've crafted over your seven years in the trenches, that that this is sufficient, doesn't need to change based on, you know, new technologies that exist or new crops of kids that are coming through or changing demographics in the local neighborhood that are impacting the, the schoolhouse demographics. Nothing like that. Interesting. I, I find this argument to be so asinine. And it is really, it, it, it tips the hand. This, it, it, if I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt, I'm saying that they just made it up. That this is just a made-up argument. This is one they make up in the teacher's faculty lounge, right, hanging out, and they're like, I, you know, I, I shouldn't get paid more than you. I mean, it's going to pit us against each other. Like, all of a sudden, I hate you because you're getting paid more because you're a better teacher, and I don't think you're a better teacher. And, oh, my God, they think they're a better teacher. Do you think they're a better teacher? Oh, my gosh, she said she's a better teacher, and that's why she got more money. That's what I've heard, too. Does that happen in schoolhouses? Oh, no, Pete, that never happens, I'm sure. <laughs> I know for a fact it does happen. She says, this is antithetical to the premise of public education. Antithetical to the premise of public education. That merit pay destroys collaboration and promotes competition. So competition is antithetical to the premise of public education. And that's why every student in the entire state of North Carolina goes to one single school, right? In the center of the state, we bus everybody into that one school, right? That's the way we do it, right? Well, otherwise, that would be competition. Well, no, Pete, everybody gets to, you know, go to the schools in their counties. Well, but that's competition, too. If I can go right across the state line or county line. Oh, my gosh, I just realized Fort Mill. Fort Mill's, I mean, that's been a, you know, basically bedroom community for Charlotte for 30 years now. 
And the schools were always so great in Fort Mill. And that's why everybody wanted to get down into Fort Mill. We're going to have to annex Fort Mill. Start sending them into that one school that's in the center of the state. Sorry. Actually, we're going to have to. Yeah, it's kind of thing about the state lines. Once you start gobbling up all the other states, we're going to have to just basically annex in America. It's just every state's going to have to be. We're going to have to have one school. It's going to be really big. But the football team is going to be amazing. And it's going to be in the in the center of America. And everybody's going to go to that one school. It's going to be a lot of, yeah, the transportation costs, it's going to be pretty steep. How about this? We'll just send all the kids there. Say, how about four years old? Just take every kid from the parents at four. Well, actually, no. We're going into a three-year-old territory now with the pre-K programs, right? Well, and honestly, the privilege that exists from being from certain types of households that have certain support infrastructure and wealth, uh, we, we don't want to you know, give anybody an unequal opportunity. So why don't we just take all the kids? Yeah, how about like three months, six months after birth? And you just take them all, send them to that, uh, to the the K-12 government school in the middle. It's going to be somewhere like, I don't know, Idaho. And you just send them all there. And then all the teachers will live there. Everybody will be equal. There'll be no competition. Because that is, right, the, that, that that's the premise of public education. No competition, right? See what I mean? These are people that are trying to advance education policy, and these are the arguments they come up with. I'm not impressed. Not impressed at all.